What do Iraq, Bolivia, Turkey, Libya, Hungary, Vietnam, Poland, etc., etc., all have in common? Well, they've all been victims of something known as regime change. A regime is a French word. It represents the form of government or a form of government or a set of rules, including cultural or social norms, etc. This regulates the operation of a government or institutions and its interactions with society at large. It comes from the old French, old government, i.e. the pre-revolutionary government, the monarchy, i.e. the Asian regime. That said, the modern usage of the word has somewhat more of a negative connotation, mostly implying an authoritarian government or some kind of dictatorship or tyranny. In Western systems of governance, sometimes this regime is considered downright evil. It is so evil that, you know, it's worth changing. Regime theory is a theory within the broader context of international relations. It derives from the liberal tradition suggesting that international institutions or regimes affect the behavior of states or other international actors. A few international relations theorists distinguish between institutions and regimes. While they recognize that they are bound up with each other, regimes can be defined as protocols and norms embedded either in institutions or institutionalized practices, formal such as states or informal such as the liberal trade regime. These are publicly enacted and relatively enduring entities. To understand the conditions for someone to want to change a regime, often violently, one must understand two things, realism and real politique. Realism is one of the dominant schools of thought in international relations theory, theoretically formalizing real politique statenship of the early modern European period, made famous by one Niccolo Machiavelli in his book The Prince in 1532. Realism itself entails a spectrum of ideas which tend to revolve around four things – state-centrism, anarchy, rationality, and power. State-centrism basically means that the state or institutions are at the cornerstone of international politics. Anarchy basically suggests that international political order is anarchic. Rationality or egoism basically states that states act in their national or rational self-interest within that international system, and power means states desire power to ensure self-preservation. The term real politique was coined by one Ludwig von Rousseau, a German writer and politician back in the 19th century. His 1853 book called Principles of Real Politique Applied to the National Situation of Germany described the meaning of the term. And I quote, the study of the forces that shape, maintain, and alter the state is the basis of all political insight and leads to the understanding that the, that the law of power governs the world of states, just as the law of gravity governs the physical world. 
The older political science was fully aware of this truth, but drew a wrong and detrimental conclusion, the right of the more powerful. The modern era has corrected this unethical fallacy, but while breaking with the alleged right of the more powerful one, the modern era was too much inclined to overlook the real might of the more powerful and the inevitability of its political influence, end quote. In my view, real politic can be described as the exercise of policies that are in line with supposed accepted theories of political realism. Regime change is the forcible or coerced replacement of one government or regime with another. The earliest use of this term is about 1925, so it's rather a recent concept, only about 100 years old, although it's been done for centuries. A regime change could replace all or part of the state's most critical leadership system, both administrative and bureaucratic. A regime change could take place through domestic processes such as revolution, a coup d'etat, or just a restructuring of the government, following some kind of state state failure or civil war. It can also be imposed on a country by foreign actors through invasion, overt or covert interventions, or coercive diplomacy. So there are two types of regime change. One, internal, such as the Russian revolutions, the Iranian revolution, the American revolution, not just revolutions, but civil wars, independence movements, and so on. And two, external. And this is the one I want to focus on. Foreign-imposed regime change. Foreign-imposed regime change is the deposing of a regime or a government by a foreign state, which can be achieved through covert means or by direct military action. Foreign-imposed regime change is used by some states as a foreign policy tool. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union frequently intervened in elections and engaged in attempts at regime change both covertly and overtly. I want to add that even though the US and USSR were both highly interventionists, the sheer volume of American-led regime change operations versus Soviet ones was quite stark. I want to look at two textbook regime change events to give you all a small glimpse into this world. The two are, one, the Soviet involvement in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, and two, the US invasion of Grenada in 1983. One of my absolute favourites when it comes to forced foreign regime change is that 1956 Soviet intervention in Hungary. It has everything by the book. Big power overwhelms small power. Has a network to ease the transition. It's all there, all done with very little bloodshed. Sure, there is bloodshed, but very little. The Hungarian uprising of 1956 was a nationwide revolution against the Hungarian People's Republic and its Soviet-imposed policies. It lasted from about the 23rd of October until the 10th of November 1956. It was leaderless at the beginning. It was the first major threat to Soviet control since the Red Army drove Nazi Germany from that territory at the end of World War II. The revolt began as a student protest, which attracted thousands as they marched through central Budapest to the Hungarian parliament building. 
The revolt spread quickly and the government collapsed. Thousands organized themselves into militias, battling the AVH and Soviet troops. During the revolt, there were violent incidents. Some local readers, leaders and AVH members were lynched or captured, while former political prisoners were released and armed. Radical impromptu workers' councils wrestles, wrestled municipal control from the ruling Hungarian Working People's Party and demanded political change. The new government of Imri Nagy formally disbanded the AVH, declared its intentions to withdraw from the Warsaw Pact and pledged to re-establish free elections. After some debate, the Central Committee of the Soviet Union decided not to intervene in Hungary. The ongoing Suez crisis in Egypt complicated matters for the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Then, on the 30th of October, armed protesters attacked the AVH detachment guarding the Budapest-Hungarian Working People's Party headquarters on Republic Square. On the 31st of October, the Soviet leaders decided to reverse the decision from the previous day. Why? Well, the USSR decided to intervene militarily one day before Hungary had declared its neutrality and withdrawn from the Warsaw Pact. Khrushchev considered his options. In fact, one of his speechwriters later said that the declaration of neutrality was an important factor in his subsequent decision to support intervention. Hungarian neutrality and withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact would have represented a breach in the Soviet defense buffer zone of satellite nations. Soviet fear of invasion from the West made a defensive buffer of allied states in Eastern Europe an essential security objective. From the 1st to the 3rd of November, Khrushchev left Moscow to meet with his Warsaw Pact allies and to inform them of the decision to intervene. On the 1st of November, Nagy received reports that Soviet forces had entered Hungary from the east and were moving towards Budapest. On the 3rd of November, a Hungarian delegation led by the defense minister was invited to attend negotiations on Soviet withdrawal at the Soviet military command near Budapest. At around midnight that evening, the the General Ivan Sarov, chief of the Soviet security police, i.e. the KGB, ordered the arrest of Hungarian delegation. And the next day, the Soviet army again attacked Budapest. The second Soviet intervention, codenamed Operation Whirlwind, was launched by Marshal Konev by 21.30 hours on the 3rd of November. The Soviet army had completely encircled Budapest. At 0300 hours on the 4th of November, Soviet tanks penetrated Budapest along the Pest side of the Dubain in two thrusts, one up Sorokskri Road from the south and the other down Vaki Road from the north. Thus, before a single shot was fired, the Soviets had effectively split the city into two, controlled all bridgeheads and were shielded to the rear by the Dubain River. Armoured units crossed into Buda and at 4.25 in the morning fired the first shots at the army barracks on Buda Osri Road. Soon, Soviet artillery and tank fire were heard in all of the districts of Budapest. Operation Whirlwind, combined airstrikes, artillery and the coordinated tank infantry of 17 divisions. The Soviet army deployed T-34-85 medium tanks as well as a new T-54's heavy IS-3 tanks, 
152mm's ISU-152 mobile assault guns and open-top BTR-152 armored personnel carriers, i.e. ton of hardware. Between the 4th and the 9th of November, the Hungarian army put up sporadic and disorganized resistance. At 5.20 in the morning on the 4th, Nagay broadcast his final plea to the nation and the world and announced that Soviet forces were attacking Budapest and that the government was remaining at its post. By 6 o'clock on the 4th in the town of Sholnok, Kada proclaimed the Hungarian Revolutionary Workers' Peasant Government back. By 8 o'clock, the organized defense of the city evaporated after the radio station had been seized and many defenders fell back to fortified positions. During the same hour, the Parliamentary Guard laid down their arms and forces, captured Parliament, liberated captured ministers. Among the liberated was Evastin Dobi and Sandor Rohani, both of whom became members of the re-established Socialist Hungarian government. At the end of the fighting, Hungarian casualties totaled around 2,500 dead, with an additional 20,000 wounded. Budapest bore the brunt of the bloodshed, with 1,569 civilians killed. With most of Budapest under Soviet control by the 8th of November, Kader became Prime Minister of the Revolutionary Worker Peasant Government and General Secretary of the Hungarian Communist Party. For a full-on invasion and regime change, I would say that that is a pretty good casualty number. Next, the US invasion of Grenada. The United States government invaded Grenada at dawn on the 25th of October 1983. Keep in mind that in 1983, the US, like the USSR in 1956, was a superpower and generally going after someone tiny. In the case of Grenada, the US went after an island nation in the Caribbean. So, strife within the People's Revolutionary Government, which resulted in the house arrest and execution of the previous leader and the second Prime Minister of Grenada, a Maurice Bishop, and the establishment of the Revolutionary Military Council with a Hudson Austin as chairman, triggered a rather negative response in Washington, D.C. The Americans feared another communist state in their backyard, so at all costs, this needed to be stopped. The United States takeover of Grenada began on the 25th of October. The US and an alliance of loosely six Caribbean nations, just imagine how much military these small island nations would have had, so assume it was just a US operation. These invaded Grenada, a hundred miles, about 160 kilometers north of Venezuela. This was codenamed Operation Urgent Fury by the US military. It resulted in a military occupation within just a few days. The US launched the military campaign following receipt of a formal appeal for help from the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States. In addition, the Governor General of Grenada, Paul Schoon, secretly signaled he would also support outside intervention, but he put off signing a letter of invitation until the 26th of October. Then US President Ronald Reagan also acted to, in inverted commas, concerns over 600 US medical students on the island. End quote. The invading force consisted of the US Army's 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 75th Ranger Regiment and the 82nd Airborne and the Army's Rapid Deployment Force. Marines, Army Delta Force, Navy SEALs 
and ancillary forces totaling 7,600 troops together with Jamaican forces and troops of the regional security system. The beauty of this operation and the propaganda around this was just fantastic. Remember, this foreign regime change happened after an internal regime change, similar to what happened in Hungary. In official terms, it's called fishing in troubled waters. There was an amazing flurry of media propaganda, force, strategic alliances, and so on to legitimize this attack. It is textbook regime change, so much so that the date of the invasion is now a national holiday in Grenada, called Thanksgiving Day, commemorating the freeing of several political prisoners who were subsequently elected to office. Now, these are just two examples. There are countless more. Of course, there is the, there are the big rocks like the Soviet and American occupation of Afghanistan, the US attacks and invasion of Iraq, Vietnam, Korea, Panama, and so on. More recently to this podcast are the Saudi and Iranian interventions in Yemen, the US EU intervention to remove a pro-Russian president in Ukraine, the NATO intervention in Serbia in the 1990s, the NATO interventions in Libya, and the Russian, Turkish, US, Iranian interventions in Syria, and so on and so on. These are raw, hard, real politic involvements, not textbook regime change because things generally go badly wrong. Actually, if you think about it, things generally can go wrong unless you do something textbook like Grenada or Hungary. So the agents of foreign regime change take it upon themselves to intervene by stealth, by covert means. It helps solve for a few things. One, it keeps the stead agents in jobs. Two, may or may not be in the overall interests of the country they are agents for. And three, may or may not, well, mostly not, help the common people of the target country. Here are 10 quick examples of this, starting with the Ukrainian elections of 2004. The Russian government publicly attempted to influence the 2004 Ukrainian presidential election. President Vladimir Putin gave public support for candidate Viktor Yanovovich and made public visits to Ukraine on his behalf. The overall interest of the Russian elite was to keep Ukraine as a reliable neighbor and partner. This was accomplished by channeling Russian funding and expertise directly into the campaign of Yanukovych or the government of Ukraine in an effort described by Putin as nakedly partisan. Don't forget, though, the US, Canada, Poland and Slovakia gave money to build political parties too. That to counter the Russians. Everyone was at it. The initial outcome was favorable to the Russians, but then the Europeans and the Americans kind of got back, and that resulted in Russia taking and settling scores by itself. It first took Crimea, and that too by force, and then it created enough violence in the Russian-speaking Ukraine that it removed its candidacy for any membership of the EU or NATO, which essentially was its stated policy anyway. Next is the Brexit election of 2016. 
the UK's decision to exit the EU had overt US interference when then-US President Barack Obama supported the Remain campaign. It is alleged, but as yet not confirmed, and may never be because maybe they did not, but apparently the Russians were involved with the Leave vote using social media to attract Leave voters. Next, the German general election of 2017. In August 2017, Turkish President Erdogan called for his, inverted commas, countrymen, i.e. German Turks, in Germany to vote against the CDU, CSU, the SDP and the Green Party in the upcoming German federal election. Erdogan called these parties, as well as Chancellor Angela Merkel, as, in inverted commas, enemies of Turkey. The Indonesian elections of 1955. The US government, under the guise of the CIA, covertly gave a million dollars to centrist political parties to cut support for President Sukarno and the Communist Party of Indonesia during the 1955 legislative election. The Israeli elections of 2016. During the government of President Barack Obama, the U.S. State Department sent nearly 350,000 U.S. dollars to an Israeli non-profit organization called One Voice. Allegations arose claiming the funds were intended to try to oust then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in favor of Isaac Herzog and Dipsy Levini. Then there's the case of the Nepalese election of 1959. The US CIA covertly assisted BP Koryala and the Nepalese Congress in winning the 1959 elections. Oh, and then there's the Sri Lankan elections of 2015. It was alleged that the Indian Foreign Intelligence Agency had played a role in uniting the Sri Lankan opposition to bring about the defeat of Mahindra Rajskaka. There had been growing concern in the Indian establishment on the increasing influence of economic and military rival China in Sri Lankan affairs. Then there's the US election of 2016. In October 2016, the US government accused Russia of interfering in the 2016 US election using several strategies, including the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and leaking its documents to WikiLeaks, which then leaked them to the media. Note, there was no collusion between the Republicans and the Russians, but that the Russians intervened by themselves proactively. Oh, by the way, well, the Russian election of 1996, a team of supposedly private US citizens, campaign experts, etc., provided assistance to the Yeltsin re-election campaign. The team received $250,000 plus payment of all costs and unlimited budget to conduct surveys and other activities. Simultaneously, the US government insured about $10.2 billion in IMF loans to Russia to keep the national economy and pro-Western liberal government afloat. What about the Republic of China in 2018? The Republic of China, by the way, is Taiwan. The Republic of China's leaders, including President Tsai Ing-wen and Premier William Lai, had repeatedly accused the People's Republic of China, i.e. mainland China, of spreading supposedly fake news via social media to influence voters and support candidates that are more sympathetic to Beijing ahead of the 2018 Taiwanese local elections. 
There are so many more. And to be honest, since everyone's at it, no one should complain if it happens to them. But regime change also means different things to different polities. What is the regime in the UK or Canada, New Zealand and Australia? Is it the Parliament, Number 10, Buckingham Palace or a combination? Well, it's a combination, but it also includes the civil service, police, military, the intelligence services and other institutions, including large investors, the super rich, including media and corporations. In Russia, the regime is the authoritarian government of current President Vladimir Putin, and he is the figurehead. Unlike the UK model, the likes of Boris Johnson or Theresa May come and go, often. They're often too bothered by party politics, elections and egos. The other institutions stay the same. The biggest difference between the Russian and British model is the strength of the Russian institutions under authoritarian rule, while in the UK model it is more fragmented with pinpoints. However, the British regime is not the British government, parliament or prime minister. It is all the other institutions. You can say and do what you like to the parliament or the government or the prime minister. They aren't the regime. But try bringing down the regime, i.e. the institutions. Then the system fights back. In China, like Russia, you have an authoritarian government, very much unlike the UK. The regime is personified by the leader, Xi Jinping, who is also head of the Communist Party of China. In China, unlike in Russia, the Communist Party forms a chunk of what we would call the regime. Try bringing down any of these institutions in China, in particular the party, and you'll see what happens to you. The US has institutions too. Like the UK system, its elected officials come and go and are drowning in ego in the next election cycle. Unlike the UK, its elected officials oftentimes join the regime, in particular presidents do, and some long-term members of Congress too. The regime, like the UK system, includes a multitude of agencies such as intelligence, big media, big tech, big pharma, big well, big corporations, and ultra-rich in general. A huge part of the regime, unlike in the UK system, at least to my knowledge, are the infrastructure of the two political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. As an aside, to find out what happens if you go against the regime, just ask Donald Trump, who never allied with the regime in the first place. Ask him what happened in the 2020 election. India is an interesting case. It's interesting that, like the UK, it has a parliamentary system of government, and the general setup is UK-like. However, the institutions, or the deep state in India, is even less centralised, and for a country of its size, the deep state to activities ratio is so low that the regime in India hardly now, hardly really exists. The government, parliament and even prime minister's power is limited oftentimes because of the ineffective state. For someone foreign to bring down the complex nature of state and national elections, the institutions and then to take over would have the task of a lifetime. The regime change would be close to impossible to accomplish effectively. It's simply too large and chaotic. The European Union is also another interesting case. In a different way to India, it has all the institutions that are nicely centralized and effective. They pass rules, they do stuff, they're organized. However, they're not a regime at all. Power, the real power, still resides in the constituent countries that form the EU. 
Yes, the EU has gotten more powerful since 1992 in particular, but bar Brexit and Greece bailout hiccups, etc., etc., but it has no teeth. It isn't even a regime. No one can take down what doesn't exist, isn't real. You really need to bring down the French and German governments in order to bring down the EU. Well, what about the future? These days, it is simple enough to intervene in anybody's elections peacefully. You can try it yourself. A few euros here and a few dollars there can buy you some marketing on social media in someone else's elections. Yes, you can do it. There is always a regime to crack. If you're interested in the more violent form of regime change, maybe that's something you'll want to leave to the experts. Because if you do it, not enough people would suffer or die. The real experts, you know, your country's foreign intelligence agencies, etc., etc., make sure things get done. You know, the traditional way. Not necessarily like the Grenada model or the Hungary model, but these days more like the Syria and Iraq model. This has been an Alternative History Podcast. Did you subscribe, follow, like this pod? If not, please do. Thank you for your time.